the fun of dying. Just by virtue of the sentiment the title implies, you might assume that the following discussion will be light, innocent, and even a touch naive. Well, I can assure you, this is anything but. In my conversation with attorney and afterlife researcher Roberta Grimes, we take a critical and evidence-based look at what happens when we die. From quantum theory and breakthroughs in consciousness research to debunking the debunkers and even first-hand reports from those who have died, Roberta Grimes has collected what some may say is irrefutable evidence that not only is there an afterlife, but yes, it can and often is fun. Take a listen. Roberta, you really covered the gamut when it comes to the subject of the afterlife in your book, The Fun of Dying. Now, at the outset, for those who may not be familiar with your book and where this name came from, the title might seem a bit paradoxical. I mean, we're talking about perhaps the most feared and dreaded and yet inevitable event that all of us will experience. And needless to say, probably have already experienced at least several times in our reincarnational cycles. And here you are saying, heck, not only can dying be fun, but according to those who have died, it is fun. Can you explain? Well, um, I wanted to call the book um, Dying for Idiots because I thought <laughs> dying for dummies would be taken. <laughs> And, and, but then, and it was accepted for publication, but they said, you got to change the title. And I couldn't think of a title. And then one morning I woke up and there were three titles in my mind, the fun of dying, the fun of staying in touch and the fun of growing forever. And of course, now I know where they came from there. My, my guide put them in my mind. Mm. So that was where the title of the first book came from. And I knew that in due time there would be more. And when suddenly it was time to, to use those titles, I did. It was just... I do so little on my own. It's it's all a team effort. Right. Well, we were talking a little bit offline about that process. And uh, if I may say, and I think you did say at least once before publicly that this was a channeled work. And uh, I mean, our audience is, is well familiar with that process. And needless to say, I think that the channeling process is probably far more common than we know in, in any creative endeavor. So... Uh, well, totally. The, yeah. Well, oh, the, yes. <laughs> in fact, I think I've come to the conclusion that most... Uh, people who write actually are to some extent they have they certainly have guides working with them and in many mm. cases the guides are the ones who lead the process i've tried to write without you know just on my own i think i'll write about this and i can't that's not possible mm. i can't even make a sentence interesting isn't that interesting well that could take us down a whole another tangent about <laughs> do we have original thoughts i mean are any of the thoughts our own uh but still we are perhaps the medium for which the work comes through from another another realm but it's we're still all connected to it so well totally. let's let's get into this book and, and there's so many different areas that i that i'd like to touch on in one short hour and let's let's see how many we can we can hit now i want to talk about uh, uh someone who uh who's a colleague of yours in the field of law uh, uh roberta is a, an attorney practicing attorney this individual's name is Victor Zamet. You know, I've known Victor's work for years. He, he wrote the foreword to your book. He's incredibly respected in this field of work, and I was so excited when I saw that he wrote the foreword. I've heard you say, Roberta, there, that there are quite a few attorneys that have gotten into this area of afterlife research. Why do you think this is so? Well, I think one of the things that law school does is to teach you how to think. Um, that's the main thing it did for me. <laughs> 
and to teach you how to do research in a disciplined way and to assemble a case, which is how, you know, Victor talks directly about that. His, his first um, book, I think, was The Allure Presents a Case for the Afterlife. That's right. I mean, this is, to him, it's very much um, an area of research that springs from his legal background. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's just that it teaches you how to think and it teaches you, it teaches you how to assemble evidence and to analyze it in a rational way. Mm-hmm. Um, the best researchers are skeptics by nature. And I think that um, many lawyers are taught to be skeptical of what they read uh, and and how to, you know, either rule it in or rule it out, how to how to uh, debunk things and, and or how to uh, affirm them by the kind of research they do. Mm-hmm. That's all I can think of, uh, yeah. really, as, as why. But, but you're right, there are quite a few who are interested in this field. Yeah, interesting. I have a feeling that's got several layers to it. I'd like to, to, to survey, as we spoke about, I happen to be married to one of those attorneys, and I, I wouldn't call him, a, well, I suppose he has a skeptical aspect to him. But he's certainly not doing this research. He has to listen to me talk about it, though. Yeah, so interesting. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the debunkers, since since you brought that up. The the debunkers in this field. Uh, you devote some time in your book to how these individuals in, invest in trying to debunk the reality of an afterlife, despite the amazing swath of historical evidence that you and I know, uh, both know, exist. Uh, do you think? Here's my question. Do you think that those who are so vehement about discrediting this work might have an ulterior motive? I mean, why all of, of this energy do. and resources and determination coming from these types of people? What's their what's their goal? What are they trying to do? They're trying to feed the kids. <laughs> I mean, most of them now, it's been interesting to watch this development, but understand where it comes from. Um, the... There are some who trace it all the way back to Plato and Aristotle, where they divided knowledge into two spheres, spiritual and physical, and never the twain shall meet. Now, we know that, of course, that's nonsense. But what happened was in the late 19th and early 20th century, there were two big developments that happened at about the same time. The first is, and I think they're connected, the first is, of course, that um, uh, Max Planck and other uh, leading uh, physicists discovered that there's a whole new kind of physics, folks. Mm. It's not all Newtonian. And, and they came up with quantum mechanics, and which is obviously correct, but it doesn't fit with the, uh, the, the original physics, the Newtonian version, which is uh, you know, essentially uh, physical. And where quantum physics is not obviously physical. And anyway, they can't put them together. And so just as they were tearing their hair out over this, we began to get excellent communications from people we used to think were dead, but primarily through deep trance mediums and channels. Such excellent evidence that there were serious researchers who got involved and uh, studied the, the deep trance mediums. And there were books compiled of the evidence that they had come up with studying proofs of their own existence these people had put out and it was public published this was when we were supposed to do the synthesis that's only now happening and this was a hundred more than a hundred years ago mm-hmm. we were supposed to come up with a stunning conclusion that there's one reality not two and that that reality is essentially spiritual but the the People whose livelihoods were invested in physics would not allow that to happen. Instead, they came up with what they called the fundamental dogma of science. And you could find this back back then in print. They're too smart to put it in print anymore, but they still (laughs) live by it. Um, And that is that 
basically they'll, they won't look at anything that hints at a spirituality or a god. Science literally will not. You can't get published in a peer-reviewed journal mm. or teach in a university if you if you look at the whole body of what we call afterlife evidence, and really all the evidence that has to do with what's actually going on. This happened more than 100 years ago, and almost immediately science went into the weeds, and they've been in the weeds ever since. Mm-hmm. It's really pathetic to see. It but is. because... The, the, the mainstream, and we, we've talked about this, you and I, uh, mainstream people are starting to get a clue uh, about that, that a lot of things are being kept from them. For example, near-death experiences clearly happen, and they clearly indicate a whole lot more is going on. So what they've got to do, these people who are desperately defending their dogma, is they've got to come up with ways to debunk the evidence. Right. Right. How do you do that? What, what they all do is look at what they think. They don't actually study the phenomenon. Those who do, by the way, change sides. They say, okay, this is a valid phenomenon, and there are great examples of people who've done that. But for the most part, what they're trying to do is make it go away. So they look at what they think are some important claims. They come up with a way to produce whatever that phenomenon is physically, and they say, okay, that explains it all. No more near-death experiences and go on. It's crazy. It's yeah. stupid. It's, there's nothing about it that's scientific, but that's what they do. Defending uh, an ar- arcane Newtonian Defending model. A primitive concept, which is, well, number one, anything with a dogma is a belief system. That's mm-hmm. what dogmas are. They are fundamental statements of belief. Mm-hmm. And therefore, science, in essence, turned itself into the religion of atheism more than 100 years ago, and that's what it remains. Wow. For so long as it thinks there's a dogma, and a dogma is something that science should follow, then they're, they're, they're totally unable to look at reality in any kind of way. And it makes, it makes for a strange situation that we're in because we actually know more about reality than the scientists do at this point because we, you know, we're, le- we're studying without a bias. Right, right. Well, I think for sure it's promoting um, mass cognitive dissonance because let's face it, Roberta, there are so many people that are having experiences of their own. They don't know what bucket to put it in. They feel like they have That's to right. put it in some sort of a dog- dogmatic, uh, you know, framework in order to quantify it for themselves. And so when you have still this pervasiveness of uh, fiercely defending a, a Newtonian or a classical model, um, it makes for a confusion and, and absolute, you know, questioning your own sanity. So that <laughs> that's not fun. I want to get to the fun. We're going to have to continue <laughs> to think on our own. Well, you know, you're, you're bringing me, you're segueing me beautifully into as I'm looking at my little my little cheat sheet here and talking about quantum physics. Now, you do say uh, that clearly this is not necessarily your bailiwick. I, I might argue no, differently because <laughs> you did a pretty good job of, of uh, weaving it into the whole idea of uh, uh a pot of evidence for the afterlife. Let's talk about that. I mean, you mentioned specifically the idea of time and space and matter and energy. How does this area of science factor into bringing uh, the case for the afterlife? Well, the way that afterlife researchers began to look seriously at quantum mechanics, what really was by the latter part of the and uh, the very end of the 20th century we had figured out what was going on we were sharing we all reached the same conclusions independently so it's pretty clear this is what's going on but one of the things that really confused us was that the physics of what we think of as the afterlife it's really real life was so different 
from the physics here. I mean, you could travel inf- across the entire universe, physical universe, in an eye blink, for example. Um, p- everything is mind created. Uh, just all of it made no sense to us. Uh, it all exists exactly where we are. How is that possible? I mean, if they're mm-hmm. not up on clouds, they're in the same place we are. Then the what we needed was a way to make, to make that physics make sense. And then about the, within the first few years after this century started, we started to get very good quantum physics for dummies books. And we all read those books and we went, aha, mm. now understand it. Quantum physics seems to be a plug between the entirely consciousness-based physics that exists in most of reality and the math-based artificial physics that exists just in the physical universe, which is a tiny part of what even physicists know exists. Mm-hmm. Wow. So that's, that's why we came to it. But no, I, I think the fact that I've never taken a physics course has been a great advantage because I didn't have anything to unlearn. <laughs> well, I certainly am a far cry from knowing knowing a, a bit about, well, a little bit maybe on the fringes of, of the quantum mechanics model. And I, I my audience you know, is tired of me saying this because I give this guy a plug constantly. And that's Michael Talbot of the Holographic Universe. That cracked open my, shifted my paradigm. A uh, truly brilliant as, man. Isn't yes. that something? I just if, you know, if someone could write a book like what, almost 30 years ago, and it have it still be on the cutting edge is by itself incredible. Absolutely. Well, you know, I just had a conversation with someone on air about Michael Talbot, not solely, but he was included in the conversation. And I believe it was he didn't admit it uh, publicly, but that this book perhaps was a channeled body of work. And it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. yeah, I believe it totally was. Yes. Yeah. Incredible. Because it couldn't be as brilliant as it is. I don't know. He wrote things that I don't think anyone could have written back then if it had not come from elsewhere. Right, right. If people are interested in a simple quantum physics for dummies book that works, um, read Quantum Enigma. Hmm. It's Anybody can understand it and read it. Michael Talbot's book is absolutely brilliant, but it... It's a little harder for all of us to understand, but Quantum Enigma will basically show you exactly what we're talking about. That sounds great. And that's still in publication, obviously. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, in fact, I think you may be able to find it for free on the internet at this point. Okay. Well, we'll certainly put a link. We'll put a link to Amazon. We'll give Amazon a little <laughs> plug. That'd be nice. Yeah, the author yeah, yeah. yeah. should yeah. give it a little plug. Absolutely. Wow. Well, uh, where do we go from here? Let's talk about time. Roberta, let's talk about time or the lack thereof. Yeah, you yes. know, where where are we here? Now, this is a this is a subject that has always, always fascinated me. And when I started to broach the idea through my own research of time being a um a construct, uh, a man-made construct, in fact, yes. and that, you know, in this multifaceted universe for which we live, multidimensional. Most uh, of these environments are absent of time, including the afterlife. Let's talk about that. Yeah, that was another of the things that was confusing to us. Time and space both are, which and they, they tend to be mentioned in the same breath, uh, because partly because it's a factor of space is a factor of time and time is a factor of space. It takes a while to go through space, but if there were no space, there would be no time Mm. needed to traverse it. Well, it turns out there is no such thing as space. It's a construct of this material universe and there is no such thing as time either. Where we go, where we come from and where we go back to neither exists. And yet it seems to us that this mind constructed uh, reality, which we think of as the afterlife is much bigger than here. It's, it's imagine seven or eight universes 
and that's how big it is. And but they're all they're all places we could visit all of them in a, in an eye blink because there's no such thing as time. It doesn't take us any time to get to it. A whole other part of reality. That's hard to get your mind around mm. because here we sit, you know, and if you decide you're going to Paris for the weekend, it's going to be an undertaking. However, it isn't there. Um, you can go anywhere on earth or anywhere in the universe and it doesn't take any time at all. And don't we, when we sleep, what's happening there? Yeah, I didn't plan on bringing this up, but let's talk about the sleep state. And I have heard countless researchers and experiencers of OBEs uh, in other areas compare the process of being uh, in a sleep state like being in an afterlife state. We we travel, we're more thought responsive and creating environments, et cetera. As a mechanical fact, just an artifact of the fact that we're having this weird, strange experience on this artificial uh, reality, which we call the universe, we don't ever need to sleep. Our bodies need to sleep, mm. though. So while our bodies are sleeping, that's we have our private time. We get to get out of our bodies and travel astrally. We all do this. Mm-hmm. And for, as far as we're able to determine, this is a universal for people. We can travel to the end of the universe. We can travel to go see our dead loved ones. We can travel to many of us meet almost nightly with our spirit guides, especially if we're working on some work for them, which many of more than we realize of us are actually our avatars for guides who need to have work done on Earth, and we're just doing that work, and we don't even know it. Hmm. But as it's as part of that process, we do sometimes travel very far we're attached to our bodies by what's called a silver cord it's an energy cord and it's just as tough and strong as you can imagine during our lifetimes doesn't matter how far we go we trail that cord with us and that's how we get home again but to our bodies but when it's time for us truly to go home the cord breaks and we go to the next level of reality very easily mm-hmm. i'm thinking of the that silver cord and and how that is connected to the umbilical cord at birth? It probably isn't. Um, I I have a friend who there's a a vagus nerve or some major nerve in our bodies, and she has found evidence that that's where the silver cord actually connects. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's, it's not... It's not a mechanical mechanical cord at all. It's we, our bodies are made up of nested energy bodies, like a Matryoshka doll, a Russian doll. Right. They're nested. Yes. And the outer two appear to be the physical body that we see. That's made out of the mat, same matter we think we see around us. Uh, and then the very outermost one is an energy body, which we think of as our aura. Uh, it basically it's it's a a, a, a defensive system against negative energies, which if they if, if we didn't have an aura, we would be under a constant attack from negative entities. And then they all of the the interior, and we aren't sure how many there are, but there there are interior bodies, and most of them simply gather as energy in our chest and then lead through the top of the head or. Uh, through just right through the chest wall there are people who can see this happen in mm-hmm. fact there's a video on the internet of of a rat being suddenly trapped 
And you can see when the rat dies, just this mist rises and disappears. Absolutely. So yeah. it's not just animal. It's not just people. It's animals as well. Sure. Um, sure. It's a natural part of the death process. I'm glad you brought that up because I I want to talk about that too. I too have surveyed uh, individuals that have been bedside uh, of individuals in the dying process. In fact, a cousin of mine who was. Uh, bedside uh, as his godfather was passing away. And this person is the most lay, lay individual, not into these subjects at all. But he yes. said, Alexis, I saw a mist escape as my godfather took his last breath. I saw it rise out of his yep. body. Yep. And yep. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> it's, it's an amazing, amazing thing. And I know this has been captured on, on film on occasion. Uh, yes. So we're seeing that essence of, of just... Uh, is that the soul? What What is what is that? I, I'll tell you in one second, but I just to finish that thought, which thank you, that meant, thank you for saying all of that. There's a book called a 2010 book by Raymond Moody, who was one of our mm -hmm. great um, uh, sort of uh, godfathers in this field. Uh, it's called Glimpses of Eternity. And yes. what he studied was um, what, what are what he calls shared deathbed share, shared deathbed experiences. He coined the term, of course, near death experiences, and now he's coined shared deathbed experiences. And it's the kinds of experiences people have like that. They get to see a mist. In some extreme cases, they actually get to go with the person who has left the body partway on this journey. I know someone um, that has. I know someone yeah. that accompanied her sister across the, the bridge, as she said. But go ahead. Yes. Yes, but but Thanks. that's it. Glimpses of Eternity, Raymond Moody. Read that book. It's like it. all his books. It's easy to read. Yeah, I have that um, one. <laughs> yeah, isn't it great? It's great. Absolutely. Oh, there's so much. Let's, okay, let's go from that. We're going to fit a lot of stuff in here today. I want to <laughs> go from that to the whole phenomenon of deathbed visitors. Again, all of these things that we're talking about, folks, are really lending credence to uh, the idea that they're to say the least, there's something more and maybe more fun. We're going to get to that. But all of fun. these elements of which you touch upon and, and in some cases go into great detail brilliantly in your book are making the case. Uh, these um, bedside visitors that I personally, once again, have talked to individuals who have been by the bedside that have witnessed the person dying saying, oh, look, there's auntie, I don't know who, in some cases, there's strangers. Yes. Let's talk about that. Too common to ignore for sure. Within the people tell me that, especially people who are like dying of cancer say, death isn't fun. No, we've got to have the body weak enough for it to release us and getting the body weak enough can be very much unfun. But within the a day or two um, of when the death is going to happen, there's very often a surge of uh, people who have been in a coma might wake up. Um, there's what's called terminal lucidity. Even people who have Alzheimer's will mm -hmm. be sitting up in bed talking normally yes. and recognizing people. Uh, it's a very this is a very common phenomenon. It means death is is has Eminent. basically yeah. begun. The process has begun, and usually during this time, sometimes earlier even, people will see people that are, they you sitting there listening to them talk don't think are there because you can't see them, and they're typically whoever they're most likely to trust. So they might be childhood pets, they might be often typically their spouses and or parents. 
um, could be one, could be a whole crowd of people. They generally appear in the upper corners of the room, and sometimes they stay there, and the dying person will just lie and look at the, look at a corner of the room. You think they're spaced out, but they're talking in their mind with their visitor. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they'll come down and walk around the room. Sometimes people will see them, like like your friend. They will see people who are uh, you don't think are there. But, but what's universal among them is they're all happy, they all look young and healthy, no matter how old they were when they died. And when you see that person or those that group of people appear, you realize, okay, you're going to be fine too, because look at them. They obviously came through it just fine. And yeah. after that, then, um, the only thing I would suggest to people is when you're out of your body, be sure you go with your visitors, because there is a danger in the period when you first leave your body, you are as clueless about what's happening as a newborn baby is upon leaving the birth canal, exactly as clueless. You don't know what's going on. It's not It's not something that's going to happen spontaneously. The people who come for you are there to help you transition. So go with them because you can't help the people around the bed. And this is one reason, if you're at a, at a deathbed, be sure you don't call out to the person or try to get their attention when they're dying because you can cause them to become mm. earth. Um, Are these people that you're talking to you respond to that? I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. we got a little crossover there. Apologies. Are you, when you speak of the people, Roberta, that are coming for the dying person, is this who you refer to as rescuers or is that something different? No, th- this is normal. This is a normal process. These are just deathbed visitors. Rescuers are a different, um, kind of helper. They don't have to know the person, but their job is to get the attention of people who have become earthbound. Mm. It's a serious risk. Yeah. And rescue work is going on all around us. Dead people are doing the rescue work, but also um, there are living people who do this. Um, I had an experience of it because I was, um, Bruce Moen is someone who has been doing rescue work his whole life and I took a seminar with him and he swore to me I could do it I said no way I'm as psychic as a post but I did I rescued a woman who died in the 1780s and uh, her children dressed at like the early um, 1800s were waiting for her and I brought her to that person why would I be able to do it when the little yeah. boy that I imagined next to me who really was they uh, what, what Bruce said was, imagine the guy who's who's doesn't matter how he looks. He 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 needs you to refer to the to to him so that you can get her to pay attention to him. This was a dead person who was relatively high level. She could not perceive him, but since I was a living person, she was able to perceive me. That's one of the problems with rescue work. People who have gotten themselves stuck that way just by being distracted at the wrong moment at, during their death process. Uh, can't see people who are completely dead. They've they've lost that ability. So right, right, right. But you're, this is going on all the time. It, it 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 okay. Well, okay. So I'm going to put the. I don't want to call it devil's advocate. I don't like that term. But we're. I'm talking to an attorney here. I live with one, and so I'm going <laughs> to come in as one for a moment. Now I'm going to put the personal feeling and philosophy aside because we I know understand. you and I. But talk to me as the attorney. How do you know this is really happening and not something of the imagination. I can't tell you for sure because I've not done it as a routine thing. I have studied the phenomenon. I understand how people get stuck Mm -hmm. and I understand the process of rescue. And part of 
what I do, which um, I think all good researchers do, is to we're, we're very critical of any new information that comes along and very skeptical of it until we can see how it will fit. Because mm-hmm. if you accept just any old thing, you're not going to build a puzzle that makes any sense. Everything has to fit. So I get how it has to fit. Um, I had explained to me what the process would be and how it would unfold, but no details. They didn't say, this is who you're going to see. Nobody gave me these suggestions. And the the last thing I could imagine was somebody uh, who is sitting in a courtyard, and I actually resisted seeing this. Mm -hmm. As I was told, now you're approaching someone who needs to be rescued. I didn't want to see this old woman, and she was very cranky, frankly. And she was dressed. She had... She had died in her old age, but she was still thinking about herself as young. So she was dressed like someone from the, you know, 1740s, and she still was using a spinning wheel. I mean, it was just very strange. I would never have made that up. So this was a spontaneous uh, image that came to you that you initially resisted, you're saying? I did, yeah. Well, let me let me add to the to the caseload here. I'm going to give you a little story that would, and this is how me as a researcher, Uh, corroborate uh, to the best of our ability anecdotally because this is really what we're dealing with let me give you a little a little snippet of a a true story of an individual that i did not know personally but a dear friend of mine's daughter was best friends with this is a young man who unfortunately committed suicide uh, a couple of years ago and this uh again my friend's daughter this was a they they were friends good in fact I, i think they were dating at one point now my friend's daughter and my dear friend have a uh, a sense themselves. I would not actively, but they they I think they have an inherited psychic sense or intuitive sense. This particular individual, who we'll call Sam, not his real name, after shortly after he, he took his own life, was repeatedly appearing before both my friend and her daughter. In some cases, uh, together. Haunting, wow. literally haunting. Now, the point I want to get to is, and I'm, I tried to get her on the phone knowing that I would be talking to you to get a little bit more of the detail. But as I recall, this went on for a couple of months, I believe, that she, they were both seeing this, this young man in a distressed state almost daily. At some point, I remember my friend telling me, guess what? Sam has been rescued. We yep. saw, my daughter and I both witnessed whether astrally or I, I don't know, I think she was describing it as if it was happening in front of them. Uh, the image of another individual who I think they knew who had passed that ca- who Sam didn't even know in life, someone that they knew, watched him come for Sam and take Sam away. And after that image played out for both she and her daughter, Sam was never seen again. Isn't that wonderful? So there you go. I just helped make your example. Yeah, (laughs) something. Yeah, and you you know you do you hear these these stories over and over again. I mean, look the the work that both you and I are in, and you've obviously done a a lot more research in this specific this niche area than I have. But having uh, brushed that area of research, you hear these stories and the common threads, and they're all, all of them. Each one will have a unique dimension to it, but there are these common threads that cannot be refuted, right? They just yeah. can't. Wow. That's right. Let's talk about after-death levels. Um, you know, we love our levels. We love our, our time and our space and our hierarchy and levels. And you do say that we don't experience that stuff uh, over there the same way. And yet, you, as well as other researchers, have talked about after-death, let's say, states, 
uh, going from a, perhaps a denser to a lighter, um, uh, you know, experience. Let's let's talk about that well, for a bit. One of the things that's that interests me a little bit is I'm coming to believe that we're actually influencing what happens when people get there. Now that we have this good information and we've come up with some ideas, they seem to be using those ideas to make it easier for people to recognize who they are. Just a little bit of evidence of that, but I find it fascinating. Mm -hmm. But the, the researchers, the very earliest researchers, and I think this is even in the Bible, talk about seven levels of the afterlife. And we, we have made that very conventional. The seven levels are the lowest is what Jesus called the outer darkness, where there'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Above that is like a purgatory level. And then levels three through five are what, what we call the summerland. That's a, a Viking term. The, the, the beautiful earth-like gorgeous levels with the top of, of the summerland levels, level five being unbelievably beautiful. Level six, we used to think, was not even material. That was where the very highest level beings go. Now we understand that it is material and even more beautiful, and uh, it uh, uh, it contains great universities. And level seven was the source level. Well, you couldn't go higher than that, could you? Now we know we know you you can. That's yeah. not the top. Um, but you can find books all over the place that basically put this out as absolutely true and um the, the the most the highest level being i have ever known i never knew him in, in life but um his name is mikey morgan he was um, a sixth level being very high level very advanced being who had last lived in the 1600s and decided he wanted to be able to teach us but of course he couldn't relate to people living today so he came back for a brief 20-year earth life and uh, now he communicates uh, with his mother and through her. Uh, he's written a book called um, Flying High in Spirit, a young snowboarder's account of his ride through heaven because, because he loved to snowboard when he was here and he still does it there. But when, when he first saw how we were looking at the afterlife levels, he said, you know, that's all new to me. I don't ever think of levels. I just think of going someplace and I go someplace. Now, the higher you are, the easier it is to think of it that way because travel is instantaneous mm -hmm. because you can, go, you can go anywhere. People at the lowest levels cannot go higher. And when that, with, what, do people, what, what do I mean by at the lowest levels? It's all about your consciousness vibration. Mm -hmm. Your consciousness, each of us is consciousness. That's all we are. And at the lowest level of vibration are all the, the horrible, ishy uh, emotions. Fear is the core bad emotion. But there's grief, anger, hatred, all the negative stuff down there. And the closer you are to that level, the less you can do. You may not even be able to get as high as level three. The highest vibration is infinite, perfect love. This is all Jesus says this in the Gospels. The highest vibration is perfect love. And when you are vibrating at that level, which Mikey is, you can go anywhere. You literally, it, it's unlimited what you can do. That's interesting. I've heard you bring this up before. I believe it was with uh, with George Nori on his his great program Beyond Belief, where you talked about there's sort of a you're sort of quarantined, if you will. <clears throat> I'm paraphrasing. If you are if you're finding yourself as your residence in a lower level, that it's it's difficult, if not impossible, to go any higher. And yet, I I, I don't know. Um, it's a very interesting thing. I'm thinking of my 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 good friend and colleague William Buhlman, who's a out of body uh, researcher and experiencer, and and his discussions about the thought responsive environments in the out of body state. But even he says, 
in the astral, uh, well, in some cases, the astral is thought of as a lower level, but you're still, you still have the ability to be thought responsive. In other words, creating environments just on instantaneous thought. So yes, yep, totally. The more, the higher your vibration, your consciousness vibration, the more powerfully you can create things. Sure, agree. You know, when Jesus says, if you um, have as much faith as a grain of mustard seed, just this little tiny belief, you mm. can tell a mountain, go throw yourself in the ocean and it will obey you. Well, that's an extreme way of saying the same thing. If you are, if you are vibrating at a high enough level, you have the power just by virtue of your own mind's power. You have the power to do just about anything. That's how they build stuff there. Um, More advanced beings come after you design the house you want. They come and they think it into existence, and it's as solid as can be. Are you familiar with the Seth material by Jane Roberts? I have seen a little of it. One of the the rules I made early in my um, work was that I was not going to trust anything channeled or, or received <laughs> after 1950 because I knew I didn't want to corrupt what I felt well, pretty common, uh, pretty uh, confident had come from naive truth tellers. Right. I didn't corrupt it with anything that was coming through uh, someone trying to make a dollar. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there had there are some flagrant charlatans. Um, oh, there's the no six, question. Still are. <laughs> I'm sorry. Still are. <laughs> there still yeah. are. Yeah, so I don't yeah. I don't read any of that stuff. But yeah. what I what little I have been told about it suggests that it may be genuine. Oh, I well I I happen to be uh, pretty well read in the Seth material, and um, although I'm not I don't necessarily have an affinity to channeled material per se. It was just the body of work that was intriguing. But the reason why I bring that material up is because of the famous uh, adage of his uh, Y C Y O R or you create your own reality, and it just reminds yeah. me the way he described or this entity described that is very similar in uh, you know with the caveat that. You understand, A, that you can, and B, that there's a faith in that process. Mm -hmm. So it all kind of jives. It all, to me, kind of corroborates each other, which is quite, quite interesting. That's part of what's intriguing and, and really addicting about this work. The more of it you do, the more you begin to see how it all fits together. And you, wherever you started, you're all working. We're all working toward the same middle, and we're all putting together this gigantic tapestry together. Absolutely. Well, you've done a fantastic job in adding some serious thread to the tapestry for sure. Thank you, dear. You, I'm telling you, you didn't leave any stone unturned, as far as I can see. Uh, you also talk about the uh, the advent. Well, I'm talking about the advent of technology, but, but specifically, let's talk about IT. Which is instrumental transcommunication, and of that EVP, electronic voice phenomena. I have always found that fascinating, and you do touch yeah. on that in your book. Let me ask you a question: EVP and or ITC, which includes EVP, has been around for quite some time, even when the devices were not nearly as slick as they are now. But here comes this this new uh, version of technology to this digital world that we live in. And I got to tell you, Roberta, I'm hearing from so many people that are telling me of sort of anomalies coming through devices and computers, including orbs and, and voices and other such things. <coughs> Have you heard this as well? And what are your thoughts on that? Well, there there's an explosion of stuff going on and it's all being initiated not on this level but on uh, the level of what we think of as the afterlife Uh, a lot of experts a lot of names you would know uh, are working very hard to come up with electronic methods of communication 
and it, it's what they tell us it's going to bear fruit. The trouble is we're there, there's no time. So they'll mm. say, oh, by the end of the year, or oh, within two years. And it's turning out to be, for various reasons, very difficult to do, because what they're trying to do is lay what they call fiber optic cable. Hmm. Get, I'm sure that's a metaphor, but uh, through the lowest levels. The lowest levels are full of negative entities, and there's one particular kind of negative entity that feeds on human negative emotions, primarily fear. And once everybody understands there's no death and we're going home to a much better place, there won't be any fear and they're going to starve. So what they did for years was to block, you know, it was sort of like trying to lay the, the telegraph cable across the, the Wild West. You know, the Indians were out to get the people who were doing the laying of cable and, it, and they blocked it for years. But we seem to have gotten past that. And uh, there are now, they, they have what are called stations in, in what we think of as the afterlife. And these stations actually are very much, are communication stations where you, you know, you can, you can go, if you happen to be a dead person, you can go and talk to living people. And really? And living people can, can talk to dead people. And it's happening right now. Okay, we've got to talk, we've got to talk about this for a minute. Let's elaborate. I'm not going to let you let this go. I have <laughs> never heard that. Stations, really a sort of, what would you call it? Uh, not a clearinghouse. That's not what, it, t t reiterate that, because that I have never heard before. What, what they're trying to what, to do is they use. They Well, let me, let me just, when you say the they. Okay. Names. What are some names? Max Planck. Uh, Albert Einstein, um, Thomas Edison, hmm. uh, Niels Bohr. There are, you know, there are a lot of them whose names you don't know, but there are some very serious people whose names you do that are working on this. And they began really in the uh, 70s and 80s working with our existing electronics. They would do things like uh, leave detailed messages on uh, computers not attached to anything. Um, and even turned off computers. Uh, they've, they've done, they've used telephones. There are recorded calls received from people we used to think were dead on yes. telephones. I'm, I'm aware of that. ADCs, actually. And let me just throw yes. in Thomas Edison. They, they soon came to see that they what they had to do was come up with an infrastructure hmm. there that we, and then teach us how to connect. They've had to lead this parade. So what they decided to do is come up with stations. And the first one, because you know, you're know you aware that in Portugal, there's been a tremendous amount of work. Um, um, uh, her name is Cardosa, and uh, she's done a great deal of work with, with um, ITC. Mm -hmm. And there, was also, there were also people in Europe who were doing great work. So the first station was in Portuguese. It was established uh, and the primary um, person they established it with is Sonia Rinaldi in Brazil. So she's several years ahead of us. But they, they have, she is now able to use this station to communicate um, not only with the dead, and, and the first people that they wanted to have able to communicate were children communicating with their parents. So she's been doing that. Hundreds of parents a week get to communicate in Portuguese with their children. Um, but she's also now working uh, at their behest with communicating with the minds of unborn children, communicating with people who are who have never been able to communicate and are in comas or are mm. nonverbal. They're doing all of this in in Portugal. And so a few years ago, I believe it was three years ago now, um, they decided they wanted to establish a North American station, which will be in English and therefore a lot easier for people to use. Um, 
And I'll tell you why the, the language matters in a second. But the, the, um, Craig Hogan and a group of people were chosen to do this. Craig Hogan is a dear friend of mine. And so they literally are working with the North American station to begin to to make it possible for the station to really work. They're, as I say, they're a few years behind Sonia. But the way it seems to work is that there's a, because we don't have vocal cords, you know, when, when we're there. Our bodies mm-hmm. don't need vocal cords. Most of the communication is telepathic. So what they're coming up with is a way for people to, in these stations, think something that gets translated by, uh, by their thought into, uh, into a, uh, words that will be heard on this level and in the voice of the person who once lived. And then they will be able to speak to living people. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, this is groundbreaking to say the least this is kind of like rocket science it sure is do you have any links that you can share with us that i can post to to so people can learn more about this work that's going on well if you if you just google craig hogan um he has a bunch of websites and on them he has two things that will be interesting to people one is um he has a method he can teach you to be able to spontaneously communicate with your dead loved ones. Um, it's a process. There, it's like eight lessons, and it, you got to work at it. But I hear from people who are thrilled with his um, uh, communication technique. But then also um, look for work with stations, or look for. Yes. I mean, I'm trying quickly to find it. I don't know exactly that, but it's. If you go to afterlifestudies.org, that's the um, uh, website of the symposium we're holding in in September, and that's this is going to be one of the topics at the symposium. So you probably can find Sonia Rinaldi mm-hmm. uh, listed as one of the presenters uh, on the symposium that's held in September uh, on afterlifestudies.org, and then look from there, and you'll learn all about the stations. That sounds fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. I have not... And I don't know about our audience. Uh, it, it had uh, has anyone heard about this phenomenon before? And you know, it's so interesting that you bring up the likes of Niels Bohr and and I would imagine Nikolai Tesla and 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 Einstein. And, too, oh, I, I would absolutely imagine as well as Thomas Edison. What I had started to say is this is very interesting because the, those who have done research, uh, afterlife research, particularly with EVP, will know that it was Thomas Edison just prior to his dying that was working diligently on, he was convinced that he could create a, a device for successful EVP. This is well documented. And so for him to, to be involved in this project on the other side would make perfect sense. Yes, it does. we. This is huge. Oh, my God. I can't wait to. I'm enjoying talking to you. But as soon as we hang up, I'm going to go check that out. The stations. That's amazing. Let's get into the fun. We're running out of time. And I I think this whole thing is fun, frankly. (laughs) But I want to let's get into the fun of this. I have heard you say, Roberta, that the dead who have communicated their experiences back to us in the physical world have described their experiences as not only fun, but even euphoric and sometimes even orgasmic. Oh yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we think we think we have a monopoly on things. We don't. Well, to begin <laughs> with, right at the start, leaving your body is described as immensely pleasurable. To leave it for the last time, um, and I suppose that would be just because you're suddenly young and you know healthy, and you were living in a boat anchor there in that dead body. So naturally, that's going to feel good. But they say it literally can feel orgasmic to leave your body. And once you have transitioned, there is 
they tend not to do, although there are reports that it happens, they tend not to do uh, physical sex at all, although we're apparently anatomically able to do it. Um, but they have something much better. And it is, they say it produces a whole body orgasm. And they basically, they're standing up. They, you don't have to have, even be related in any way. They step into, one of them steps into the other. They literally occupy the same space. It's like the ultimate hug, and they say there's no pleasure like it. And so that's what they do if they would like to do something that's really pleasurable. How May I ask how often this has come forward? I mean, I, I, I get, once again, you're digging up some stuff that I have never heard. Is this common? Of the, the reporting of this orgasmic and euphoric well, experience? Understand, most of this, this is not even unusual to them. So it's not, on this plane, because we have so little pleasure, we focus on a pleasure that to them seems like, meh, it's because normal, they have, because right. everything they do is pleasurable there. What, what I just talked about is pleasurable, but even just listening to music is entirely different and much more pleasurable experience there. Sure, yeah. um, you know, traveling and seeing things you've never seen and interacting with loved ones in a much more intense way. Everything is pleasure to them. Mm. I mean, that's why it's so much fun. There is nothing that's not pleasurable. And here we are sort of starved for pleasure. So we focus on sex, which to them, you don't need it because you're not procreating. And as, as um, my friend Mikey Morgan says, there's no sex drive. Without the sex drive, you really don't care about sex. And he died at 20. He says, I understand how it is there, but that's not how it is here. Mm-hmm. This is the, uh, the snowboarder. That's still yes, snowboarding. Snowboarder. Did he die yeah, snowboarding, by the way? Did he die that yeah, way? Yeah, he still snowboards. He says it's way better there. He says now he's as good as Sean White. I have no idea who that is. I don't know. But um, yeah. apparently he's a big deal snowboarder. But he died snowboarding in this life? Is that what happened to him? No, he, he died in an accident in the Rockies, but it was a planned death. I mean, we all, we all plan our, our exits. We usually plan two or three into our lives. And his last exit point was at 20, but he said, I was having so much fun, I just stuck around till my last exit point. And then... He died in a rollover accident in uh, in the Rockies. Mm, wow. Well, but he's snowboarding now, so <laughs> something else. Yeah, now he snowboards whenever he darn well feels like it. He, yeah, yeah. Well, he changed channels, right? And that's what something else that you a term that you use that you describe the transition into the afterlife is nothing more than changing channels. And it reminds me of. Uh, are you familiar with the work of Daniel Brinkley? Uh, Andy? Uh-huh, of course. Okay, Daniel's a, a dear friend, and I, I've had him on the show before. And I love when he he the way he puts it. Uh, he says heaven is nothing more than a shift of focus. And mm-hmm. again, these descriptions certainly seem to jive. But how would you yes. elaborate on that? How are we just changing channels in your in your estimation? Well, I understand that the only thing that exists is what we think of as human consciousness. This is something Max Planck discovered, but they ignore altogether his biggest discovery and, and just focus on uh, the little particles parts. Um, we What we are doing as... Um, as uh, people right now is our mind is like a TV set and it's tuned to this channel, this level of reality and this body on this level of reality. That's really what's going on. When we die, all that happens is our body um, is, you know, we don't need anymore. We, we turn, we tune the TV that is our mind to a slightly higher channel, very slightly higher. We pick up a whole new solid reality, just as if you went from your channel five and it looks solid to you to channel six, it looks solid to you. 
That's exactly how it feels. Mm -hmm. It's that quick and that easy. And it all happens in the same place. Your TV didn't move and your mind doesn't move. Interesting. Very, very interesting. And yet, we have to, we, now we kind of touched on this before, but I would be remiss if I didn't bring this up. And you brought this up in the book. And that's the aspect uh, or the situations, hopefully uh, less common, in which it isn't fun. And perhaps it isn't easy. We're talking about those, we, we touched on this before, they're perhaps earthbound, um, you know, that might get stuck in the outer realm, save for their rescuers that will they'll hopefully will hopefully come for them and they'll go with uh, to to uh, another level. Talk, let's talk about that a little bit more. And how common do you think that is? How many stuck people, not numbers per se, but how common is it, you think? Well, I asked my friend, um, uh, Bruce Moen, who took me on that um, took me on that wonderful journey. And uh, I, he says there are so many that I wish everyone were doing it. Doing rescue work. Apparently, it's okay. very, very common. Uh, and the, the, remember, these people are kind of in a limbo mm -hmm. because most of them don't even realize. Many of them don't realize they're dead. Yeah, I've heard that. And they're out of time. So it, they're, they're in a strange situation where what they seem to do, for the most part, is go through the same afternoon for sometimes centuries. They, they don't, they don't, I mean, of course, from Massachusetts as we are, there are a lot of very old houses there. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I spent many years in Plymouth. Well, there are a lot of really old 1600s houses there. What sometimes happens in these old houses is these people are stuck, who are stuck. They, it still looks to them the way it looked when they died. Sure. They, can't, they, don't, they don't know anything has changed. So people will say, well, there's this woman we sometimes see, but she stands by that place in the wall, and then she walks over here, and she walks through the wall. Well, there used to be a fireplace, a large fireplace with cranes and kettles in that place um, where she now stands, she's working. And then she, there was a doorway that's now blocked off, and she walks through the doorway because it's still there in her mm -hmm. mind. Wow. It's well, a tragic situation, and yeah. which is why anybody who's interested in doing something worth, worthwhile could learn to do rescue work because there are so many people who need it. And you feel it's something that most people, if not all people, could do if they so desired? Well, Less. I rescued a woman who died, I think it was... 1787. I can't remember the details now, but I definitely remember the woman. And um, hmm. and I was told to bring her to her children. I said, I have no idea how to do that. And they said, you know, stick with this little little boy you imagined. He will take you there. And sure enough, we ended up on a street corner where all these people dressed in the early 1800s garb that they had worn in life. When they saw us approaching with that woman, they lost their minds with excitement. Oh, my goodness. I don't understand it. Yeah. But I was there, and I don't certainly wouldn't have made up any of that. I had yeah. no interest in making up anything like that. Isn't that something? Well, I wish that we had a two-hour because this would this would bring me all the way back to the idea of the holographic aspect of reality. I think there's a connection. Yes. What are we really? You know, when people perceive living people perceive ghostly apparitional uh, figures, of which it happens all the time. I've always questioned. What is actually taking place here? I mean, are we uh, interspersed with other realities simultaneously? Can they see us just because we can see them? Can they see us? Are there, you know, it, it just it just leads us whole, it can lead us down a whole nother rabbit hole. It, it's just completely fascinating. Yeah. 
And people need to understand, too, that the mind you have here is, is a tiny aspect of your internal mind, which is, we, we aren't sure about how much. It's like 5 or 10%, if that, of your internal mind. Mm-hmm. And we, we strip down. Just to, this is, Think of this as a spiritual gem. We come here to learn spiritual lessons. And just as you, you're going to the gym, you strip down to your gym clothes. We've stripped down to kind of our gym mind to <laughs> come here. And we've forgotten nearly everything we know. It's basically behind a, an amnesia wall that we will then pierce. And when we get back very soon after we arrive, we'll get back all that stuff we had packed up and put aside. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we'll know so much more. And we'll be able to do so much more with our minds. So um, they tell us there are a lot of things you simply will not be able to understand until you get back to who you really are. Right. Absolutely. Well, Sounds fun to me. Sounds like a journey that, uh, well, we're all going to take it, right? So we might as well get uh, get somewhat acclimated. And thanks to your beautiful book, The Fun of Dying, find out what really happens next. I think we will uh, get a good get a good glimpse. Now, this book is part of a series of fun books that I think you mentioned before that include the fun of staying in touch, the fun of growing forever, and the fun of living together. Where can people find these books, Roberta? Well, they theoretically are available in all bookstores through Ingram, but um, mm. most bookstores don't st- don't you know stack stock only the current books. Mm-hmm. So I would go to Amazon or okay. Barnes and Noble, and uh, they're also available in thirty four languages nationwide. Oh, they're excellent. available as audiobooks, and of course as Kindle. So there's no excuse, no excuse whatsoever. Well, I'm going to add to the no excuse list because we will have links to each and every one. So. It's time to start having fun, everybody. <laughs> right, Roberta? <laughs> and, and yeah, and for certain, um, I answer every email. So if you have any questions, just contact. Just go to robertagrimes.com, right. mm-hmm. hit the contact block, and send me a note. And I, I always, sometimes it takes a couple days nowadays. I used to right. say, if you don't hear in 24 hours, send flowers. But I can't say that anymore. <laughs> Roberta, but I do love answering questions and just saying hi. Excellent. Robertagrimes.com. We will have that hyperlinked as well. Well, Roberta, thank you. Yeah, I, this has been better than anticipated. I knew it was going to be good because it's one of my favorite <laughs> thank subjects. You, but dear. some of the things that you brought up will just really have me in a contemplative mode for quite some time. And I hope for everyone that's listening too. And I thank you for joining me, uh, Roberta. Th- there's definitely going to be some some follow ups if you'll if you'll let me have you on. I'd love, I to, would love to continue the discussion. So thanks, You're terrific. Thank, thank you. you. Likewise, and thanks everyone for listening to Higher Journeys Radio. We'll talk to you real soon. I was truly impressed with the vast knowledge Roberta imparted to us based on the incredible body of work she's amassed over the years with her research. And I could sense her zeal and commitment to staying on the cutting edge of this work. If there's anyone who can make the argument that the afterlife is real and fun, I'd say she is well on her way to winning the case. Be sure to stay up to date with the work of Roberta Grimes by visiting her website, simply robertagrimes.com, or visit her very active Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Roberta Grimes author. We'll have links to both of these directly at higherjourneys.com. Thanks as always for tuning in to Higher Journeys Radio. Until next time, I'm your host, Alexis Brooks.